Tonight's sermon is called, Your Gift Will Bring You Before Great Men. And this comes from Proverbs. We can go to Proverbs chapter 18. Did you say Proverbs 18? I did. Proverbs 18. This proverb has a side note. For like an entire year, this was like the proverb that God kept bringing up. Like, where is I would think of a problem. Say that. Look it up. Proverbs 18. I'd see something like, oh yeah, it sounds like a proverb. Look it up. Proverbs 18. Like over and over and over again. So like I finally got the hint and like just studied it and really got into it. There's a ton of stuff in this chapter. Uh, but verse 16, which it's funny, this wasn't planned, but there's going to be a lot of 16s in tonight's sermon. Uh, so, yeah, keep your eye open for that. Proverbs 18, uh, verse 16 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. That's your sermon title. There it is. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. What do you guys think of that when you hear it? Like, what comes to mind? Uh, like he's, t- I would, when I hear gifts, I think of like talents or things that make you good at something and people recognize it. So you're brought before great men. Yeah. And that's how I've heard it taught my entire life. And that's how I have taught it. I'll continue to teach it that way. But I think there's a second meaning as the Proverbs often have. And if you look at the the way that Solomon writes and a lot of the, the topics he brings up, he talks a lot about coming before the king when you meet the king or when you're around the king. And, and he is the king, so he's, he has that perspective when he writes. And I was kind of thinking about it today as I was writing this, and it kind of hit me like, oh, he's, he's writing about when, peop- when you come before the king, you're supposed to bring a gift. And that gift, it makes room for you, and it brings you before the king. It's, it's kind of the thing that's like, oh, okay, you're presenting yourself with this gift. So I think it's, it goes both ways where, yeah, your talents, right? It makes room for you and it brings you before great men. But at the same time, as we approach the king and the, the Proverbs, the Psalms, lots of other scriptures talk about when we come before God, bringing gifts when we come before God. So it's kind of that theme of uh, bringing a gift when you approach the king and having that be how you approach the throne. So keep that in mind as we go on. But if we look at Matthew chapter 10 now, guess what verse? 16. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) On the spot. What chapter, sorry? Chapter 10. This is when Jesus is sending out his disciples. He's empowering them to do miracles. And he gives this warning towards the end of him sending them out. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings, right? Great men. This gift that God is giving them is going to bring them before great men. And it's going to be for uh, Jesus' sake. He says, uh, before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. 
But when they deliver you, when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So a lot of the time, I've heard this verse talked about, like, oh, this is like a note on how preaching works. And that's not really what he's talking about. I think that God loves it when you plan out what you're going to say and you figure out, like, some of the 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 behind-the-scenes stuff. But more what he's saying here is you're going to be nervous. I mean, little old you is going to be standing before a king. And don't be nervous. Don't try and think too hard about what you're going to say. Rather, lean on the Holy Spirit so he will empower you in those moments of terror so that you will say the right thing so you're not getting too twisted up with your emotions in that in that moment but interesting here that Jesus's promise along these same lines right he's giving them a gift he's saying go and preach the gospel and people are going to reject you also by the way they're going to arrest you and beat you and they're going to bring you before kings but that's going to be so that you can preach to those kings and governors and also to the Gentiles. That's Jesus's prophecy and his promise. And we're going to see that tonight as we do continue in Acts. And we're in chapter 16, verse 16. I'm telling you, I didn't even plan it. I'm going, shoot, look at all those 16s. I don't know what's going on. It's a lottery. <laughs> no. That's what Paula did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, 16 turns. <laughs> yeah. So where we find ourselves is they, Paul has gone on his second missionary trip. He's brought Silas with him. He met Timothy and Lystra where he got stoned on his first missionary trip. And then he continued on. God sort of alters his plan and moves him in a different direction, and he meets Luke in Troas. And from there, they are prevented from going certain places by the Holy Spirit, and then Paul gets this vision, go to Macedonia. So they go to Macedonia, they go to this small little colony, the Bible calls it, and they go to this little prayer house or prayer meeting by the river, just women, and normally they go into the synagogue, but that's all this little colony has. So they go there, they preach the gospel, and this woman, Lydia, gets saved and then invites them to stay uh, in her house. And that's where we find ourselves now. Also interesting, I've said this before in this series, but the way that Jesus sends out the disciples in the gospels, the, the instructions that he gives them, you see the disciples, you see Paul specifically following those same instructions, right? He doesn't travel alone. He's traveling with friends. He goes preaches in the synagogues, and from there, people approach him and say, hey, stay with us, and then he says, okay, that's exactly how Jesus told them to go when he send, sends out the, the 70 disciples in the Gospels. So they, they still take that teaching, and they're passing it down, and they are continuing Jesus' ministry and doing it the same way. So that's what they do. They're, they're staying with Lydia. They're still in Philippi, which is that little colony in Macedonia. And in verse 16, it says, Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke, and the rest of the company that that is traveling with them, they have now entered new territory. 
they uh, they've crossed it. If you have that map, if you have one in, in the back, uh, they've crossed the sea, and this is the first time that we see the disciples going into Europe, and they are in a new area, and they're going to start to see some some new and different things. Now we've seen demon possession throughout the Bible before, but this is this is different. The spirit of divination, and what I'll say first off is. When you go to different places, like every place has sort of a different feeling. Those of you who have done any kind of traveling, even if you just cross state lines, you're like, oh, interesting that there's a line here that divides because, yeah, the, the landscape's different, the vibe somehow just it feels different, the people are different, sometimes the accent's different. Uh, if you go overseas, there's major differences, right? And that's not just the small little nuance or, or slight changes, but those are the, the big like, obviously the language is different, but what I'm talking about on a deeper level is like some spiritual stuff that's just a spiritual different vibe. And the Bible talks about spirits being over different cities, specifically demons ruling over different cities. And that's how they sort of plop down. That's their area. That's their territory to sort of mess with. And you feel that sometimes you go into a place like Japan. I, I've heard it. I've never been. Hopefully we'll go next year, God willing. But um, when you go to Japan, there's a there's a feeling of despair there, and it's not only visible in the people you meet, but I know Johnny speaks from experience. He felt that feeling of despair after living there for six months. It actually wears on you, and that spirit continues to attack. And you go different places, and you feel different things, and that's what. That's what happens as they start going into Europe. Now, this part of Greece that they're in it is still in the... Uh, it's owned by, I guess, it's run by Rome. But the thing about Rome is they, they liked to sort of keep the culture of a place. They're like, yeah, you guys can keep doing your thing. You just belong to us now. And we're going to have soldiers there, and we're going to set up our leadership, and we're going to do things differently. But it, they tried to keep the culture more or less the same. So they're in Greece, and the the crazy thing about this, this girl here is that, again, it's a different type of demon possession that, that we've seen so far in the Bible. Most all of the demon possessions, they're just like the crazy demon possessed person. Like, oh, that's the demon possessed one. Like, they're just nuts. They're crazy. Or they attack the person and they start convulsing. Or they're just like just they rage and they're just do these they're they're, they're like the town crazy no, that that's the demon possessed person that's what we've seen so far in the bible now what we see is a spirit of divination has possessed this girl and historically what we can look at is there was what they called the prophetess in delphi Annie and i have been to delphi in greece and they uh, how many of you have seen the movie 300 okay most of you if you haven't seen it i'm not recommending it i'm just saying a lot of people have seen it there's a scene where a mostly naked girl is like, th th there's an oracle they go to see and she's like floating around and there's mist coming up from this crack in the ground and then she like utters these incantations to this like deformed priest and then he says the, the prophecy that she gave him. That is the oracle that was in Delphi, that's what it's based on. And the temple is still there, the crack is there, like she would basically get drunk or high or something and then like pray to the demon that was inside her and it would give her this weird information and 
this is a real demon who's giving real information. Sometimes the prophecies didn't come true because that's demons don't know everything. They can piece things together and try and make an educated guess, but they are not omnipresent. They are not omniscient. They do not have the power that God has. So these prophecies that these false prophets were giving were not always true. They were not, they would not always come to pass. But uh, the interesting thing about what we see here in Acts is this girl in verse 16, she's bringing the people who basically own her a lot of money because what this demon can do is make small educated guesses or tricks or somehow tell people about things in their life and they're like, oh my gosh, how do you know that? Well, because it's a demon that's actually doing this thing and that demon's got other demon buddies and they're all working together to deceive the area. And so this girl is possessed and that's basically her job is to continue to tap into that spirit within her to deceive people. Continuing on in verse 17, it says, This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Is that true? Yes. It is true. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Does the story... story sound familiar at all? Do you remember anything elsewhere in the Bible? I'll drag your memory. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Sorry, what did you say? Jesus does a very similar thing. We'll look at it in Matthew 8. Verse 28. <laughs> Although 16 is good. I'll read 16 just because it kind of it kind of goes with what we're talking about. It says, uh, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healing all who were sick. So with a single word, Jesus is just casting out these demons, and they're like, whoa, who is this guy? Like, he's just, you know, a lot of time in the movies we see these crazy, like, exorcisms, and... They're, like, screaming and yelling and beating, and, like, people try and do that still. When people think they have a demon, they go through this crazy thing. But Jesus is casting him out with a word. So, verse 16 is good. But uh, verse 28 through 32, it says, and I'm reading this whole section because it's very similar to the story that we're going to continue reading in Acts. So, hopefully you kept a finger there in Acts. But it says, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the... Gergesis, we'll go with that, Gergesines, um, they met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Again, it's like, yeah, don't go that way because that's where the crazy demon-possessed people are going to be and they're going to attack you. Like, that's, that's what we've been seeing. Another place, there's like this super strong demon-possessed person, but it's like, yeah, that's the, those are the crazies. Verse 29, and suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, the Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, again, a single word, Go. So when they had come out, so these demons leave these two guys, 
they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled. These are the people who look over this herd of pigs. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. They didn't beg him to stay. Hey, Jesus, thanks for taking care of those crazies. Thanks for bringing us the good news. They asked Jesus to leave. And... Because they killed all their pigs. Because they killed all the pigs. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, and, and where the Bible talks about this elsewhere, it says that Jesus cast them out. It doesn't say anything about the pigs, but the, the focus in the other Gospels is, hey, he saved these guys because these demons were trying to hurt these the people they had possessed, and the demons are trying to hurt people around them. So Jesus is saving people and and sending them into the pigs. But, again, what we see here is these crazy, violent, demon-possessed people, but also a similar story, right? Like, they proclaim the truth about Jesus, right? And the question then is, both in Acts and here in Matthew, these demon-possessed people are proclaiming true things, like... This is early in Jesus' ministry, and they're saying, you're the son of God. And they're, like, afraid of him, right? And so it's like this true thing that they're saying and proclaiming, and so Jesus silences them. So I've got four reasons why this is so. Why there's these things, these demons that need to be silenced while proclaiming the truth, right? Because, again, the, the one in Acts is, like... These people are bringing us salvation. It's like, that's proclaiming the truth. But it annoys Paul. So we're going to look into this. First one is that God doesn't want to be proclaimed by demons, right? Like, would you? (laughs) No, like, he doesn't want the demons to be proclaiming who he is. God doesn't need messengers, okay? He doesn't need us. He doesn't need... Anything He can do everything all by himself. And what we've been looking at in this series in Acts is that he chooses to use us. He chooses to include us in his plan, and he lets us speak for him. Right? But God doesn't want just anybody speaking for him. He wants those who he chooses to speak for him. He doesn't want the wicked to speak of him. He doesn't want the demons to speak of him uh, and proclaim him. Uh, but he wants his people to stand up for him and preach the good news in his name. Number two, God has his timing in mind. And we see this in Mark especially, but elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, where uh, either a demon-possessed person is proclaiming what's true about Jesus, or sometimes Jesus heals a person and is like, yeah, don't tell anybody because it's not my time yet. And the, the idea here is that there was a specific time where Jesus was going to enter public life. There's a specific time that Jesus was supposed to die, and it wasn't yet. So if the word got out, a lot of people were going to try and kill him. And that happened. And it happened a little too early, at least in one point, where people surround him, they're going to kill him, and then he just disappears and walks right through him. Right? He just walks right through the crowd, and they don't touch him. So God protects that timing, but he's also he's trying to protect that timing by like, hey, be quiet. Like, 
don't don't proclaim this right now. So demons, this is number three, uh, they want to thwart God's timing and God's plan at any turn. Like if they can, they want to ruin what God has planned and they want to ruin God's timing. Obviously, we know that they're not going to really succeed at that, but that's what they're trying to do. They, they want to ruin the timing of God. Number four, demons do not want to speak truth. The Bible says that Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. Demons like lies. They like to lie to people, but they will speak the truth for evil purposes. Okay? So the reasons for that, some that I can think of is either to, to puff people up, right? They'll speak the truth to make you feel really good about yourself. And we don't know for sure, but that could be what's happening in both of these situations where it's like, oh, look, it's Jesus, the son of God. Like, it seems like they're a little afraid. So maybe not that one, but like here, maybe they're just like trying to puff up Paul. Hey, you guys are doing great. And just like this fake, empty, ah, just flattery, right? Romans warns us against people who, who have that, that flattering tongue. Like, why are you always flattering me? It's like, I don't need to hear this. I, I'm secure with who I am in God and what he's called me to do. I don't need to hear somebody just constantly saying even if it's true, it's just you're just throwing it at me, trying to puff me up, right? Um, another reason that they would do this is to tear people down. This is repeating the truth about something you've done, right? Either to shame you or, in Paul's case here, to annoy them. Uh, repeating the truth to tear you down. Like, hey, you did this thing. Hey, you failed this time. Hey, you sinned here. You, remember that time you sinned that time? You did this thing? And they'll repeat it. It's true what they're saying. But they're saying it in order to shame you. And God's like, hey, you repented. I forgave you. I died on the cross for that. And not only that, but God says when you repent, he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. Don't know if you know this, those two never meet. Um, he also says that he wants to forget those sins. God, who knows everything, says if you repent, then I forget your sins. That is sweet. That's, that's a miracle. That is an amazing truth. So when you repent of something, live in that forgiveness and don't carry that shame. And if you hear this voice in your head, like, Hey, you did this, you did this, you did this. That is an accusing type of thing. That's accusing language. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of men and he stands to accuse them day and night. That's what he's trying to do. Accuse you. You did this. You did this. You're a failure. You're not good enough. You're not doing well. And he just shoves this stuff in your face. And it's sometimes it's the truth of something you've done, but God's already forgiven you for it. So move on. Uh, demons will speak the truth with the evil purpose of sarcasm. And again, we don't know how she was speaking, but she could have been saying something like, these men are servants of the Most High, right? The Most High God, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. Like, they could be kind of doing that sarcastic thing where they're, they're saying it, but they're clearly mocking. You know? They're following around Paul and Silas and the whole party, just mocking them. Saying true things, but saying it in a sarcastic way. Could be that. Demons do do that. Demons will use sarcasm. They will try and get somebody to say something sarcastic just to hurt other people. And so we need to be aware of how we're using sarcasm. And Jesus used sarcasm, some would say, 
in, in the way he preached. I'm not saying sarcasm is across the board an evil thing. So I'm, what I am saying, though, is beware of sarcasm because it can be hurtful. And the Proverbs say that it's not a good thing to say something mean and then say, oh, just kidding. Like, there's a specific proverb about that. Look it up. I don't remember, I don't know where it is. 16. <laughs> it's in chapter 16, verse 16. No, I don't know. Um, but sarcasm. They will speak a, a truth in a sarcastic way to mock you or God. A demon might speak the truth to take away credibility. Right? They're going to say the truth. They're going to proclaim the truth in order to take credibility away from the true thing. Right? And Like how he's saying these men are servants instead of pointing to God? Is that what you're talking about? Could be that. What I was going to say is, do you have anyone in your life that when they suggest something, you instantly want to avoid it? Oh, like your mother. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> now we know. You don't have to get personal, but, uh, you know... It's confession time. Elaborate. <laughs> That's actually not. It could be. Sometimes it's true. It could be your mother or or a family member, or it could be an enemy. Like, oh yeah, I really like that band, and then you hear like them like singing oh, that song. Or, that's not what I thought you meant. I thought you meant like telling you you should do this. Well, I'm just saying that when you have somebody or something like you're into it, you hear somebody else is into it, and you're like, maybe it's not that cool. Like if they like it kind of a thing, right? And admittedly, this is a little childish. Like, I think we've all sort of felt that or, or been that way, and it's a little bit childish, but it is also how humans kind of work, right? It's like, wow, the crazy demon-possessed guy is saying this guy is the best. Like, I don't think I'm going to follow that guy. Like, the crazy demon-possessed guy says... Oh, the, this is the best coffee shop, and I hang out here all the time. It's like, eh, I'm going <laughs> like to avoid that coffee shop. I'm going to go to a different coffee shop. Like, I, I don't want to hang out where the crazy demon-possessed guy More of a tiga. hangs out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So sometimes a demon-possessed person, a, a demon speaking through a person, will proclaim the truth So no, with people looking at them and saying, okay, that person's crazy. Like, I'm not going to... A believe or do what they say because that's the crazy demon possessed guy. So, those are some reasons why a demon would speak the truth and proclaim these true things, and why a godly person or Jesus would say, Stop and cast the demons out. Right? So, here in verse 18, getting back to Acts, Paul is. He's sick of it, right? He's just, he's done. And and he casts out this demon. The word annoyed, my Bible says annoyed. I'm not sure what, what your guys' says, but yours says annoyed. I think most of them say annoyed. The, the original text, it's this idea of being ex- exhausted or exerted. Like he is at his wit's end. He has had enough. He is so done. Not even that his patience has run out. He's just like, I can't deal with this anymore. He's, he's annoyed. It's a good word, annoyed, but there's, there's an exhaustion there. And sometimes a, a demon will just repeat the same thing just to exhaust you, just to get inside your head and make you just tired. And so that's where Paul's at. So he casts out this demon. And as we looked at in a different sermon back in chapter 14, that Paul has been given the gift of miracles that when he, goes to cast out a demon, 
more than likely it'll happen. It, it, it's been granted to him that the things that he says in Jesus' name will happen. This is a, a rare thing, and it's an amazing thing, and it's a gift that God does still use. But this is something that Paul sort of lived in and exercised this gift on a regular basis, that he wasn't always just like, God, can this thing happen? He knows. He has the confidence because God has given the power to do miracles, and one of those miracles is casting out demons. So he doesn't say, God, will you please do this thing? I'm so sick of this thing. He just says, in the name of Jesus, come out. And he casts out the demon. Um, he uses, right, that gift that God grants to him to cast out the demon. Let's read on in verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, right? Your gift is going to bring you before great men. Also, note the parallel to Jesus' story that the herdsmen, right, their bread and butter just ran off a cliff. They get mad and go and they wrangle up the whole town. Right? And that's going to happen here. Verse 20. And they brought them to the magistrates, right? More great people. And said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. <clears throat> and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. So Paul's gift here, it's made room for him, right? And it's brought him before these great men, just as Jesus prophesied and told that his disciples, hey, you're going to be brought before magistrates, kings, and they're going to beat you. And that's exactly fulfilled here in Paul's ministry. And for what? Like, they, they bring these accusations against Paul and Silas, but the real reason, if you look at it, it's because what they did affected their wallet. It, it affected their, their income. It, it affected their riches. It affected their money. And a pastor that I like and I listen to his podcast frequently, uh, he says, your wallet is always the last thing to be converted. It's, it's always the last thing. Like you, you might come to the knowledge of the truth and you might pray the, pray the prayer, start going to church, start hanging out with Christian community, really love the church, really serve the church, but you might not really feel like you should give. Or you might feel like you should give, but you might not give because it's my money is what we say. It's what we feel. And so your, your wallet is always the last thing to be converted. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And he said this while talking about money. He says, you either serve God or you serve money. Like, these are your options. You either serve me or you serve your wallet. Which is it? And if you're like, eh, well, like, I'm willing to serve you, but this is like mine. <laughs> and God's like, I created you. I created everything. Everything's mine. <laughs> Stop trying to be possessive over my stuff. 
The Bible says that money is the root of all kinds of evils, right? Many types of evils. The money is the root. And I've said this before, but money's like a, a sharp tool, right? And that sharp tool will cut you and it'll, it'll, it'll slice you unless you get a handle on it. Okay. So get a handle on that knife and use that tool. Otherwise you're just going to slice yourself up and you're going to bleed out and die and, and end up in hell because you're worshiping the wrong God. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, it's a big deal because if, if Jesus says you can't serve two masters, either God or money, He's saying, if you're serving your money, you're not serving me. You're serving another God. You're not serving me. That's the stance that Jesus takes. We don't take this that seriously sometimes, but it's important. Like, quit holding on to that wad of paper thinking that it's your God. It's not going to save you. It's not going to get you anywhere except for hell unless you loosen that grip and get a handle on it and use it as a tool instead of a weapon against yourself. Here's one kind of evil that money is a root of, we just read it, right, is the truth comes to a people, it affects their wallet, so they turn them in to get beaten with rods. How do we react when God moves and our money moves with him, right? Something happens, he does something, and it's like, oh, my money, like, ah, I have less, how do we react? Do we still trust God? Do we relax in what he's doing? Do we have peace that he's still God? Or do you be like, oh, our, my God is leaving. Do we chase it? Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. This is when Job has lost a lot, right? And Job was a rich man. He had many kids. His kids died. His money left. Right? And Job says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But what does he say after that? Anybody know? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. That's it. It's a song. We sing it, and that's what he said. The Lord gives, he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the way Job lived. Even in his loss, not just of money. His circumstances, like, blatantly suck. It is just a horrible life that Job continues to live, and he continues to bless the name of the Lord. These men in Philippi, back in Acts, they did not bless the name of the Lord when the truth came to them, when these godly men cast out a demon. When the truth and the power of God entered their town, right, they didn't bless the name of the Lord. They got angry. And they, at they attacked God's messengers. The ones that God sent to them, right? The Holy Spirit gave Paul this dream of a Macedonian asking for help. So he brought him to them, right? God has called them to them. And they don't rejoice. They don't bless his name. They give him over to be beaten. Continuing in verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, 
and the prisoners were listening to them. Again, the circumstances that you are in should not steal your worship from God. Anything that bad happens to you, it shouldn't make you worship less. Whether it's your money, your pocketbook, your, or thrown into prison like Paul is here. That's a bad situation. But they pray and they sing and the other prisoners are listening to them. Paul's ministry is never dependent on his location or his circumstances. They throw him in prison and Paul considers his calling a prison ministry. Oh, I'm in prison. Guess I got a prison ministry. This is where I'm at. This is where God put me. This is what I'm doing. They bring him before kings, and he considers his calling to be a diplomat, right? An ambassador for Christ, he says, right? To the Jew, he's a Jew. To the Gentile, he acts as a Gentile. To the godless, he's a preacher. And to the godly, he's an encouragement. Like, his circumstances, he shifts and changes the way he he acts, and he, he continues to act in a godly way. And when Paul's circumstances go really downhill, right, they throw him in prison, they beat him, they stone him, the only thing that changes is that he worships more. He prays more. He writes more. Letters of encouragement to the people he's already met, right? He is more thankful because he counted a joy to suffer in the same way that Jesus did. He continues to minister even when he is in the worst of circumstances. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. I've never experienced that kind of earthquake, but that's a good one. And the keeper of the prison awakened from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. This isn't in my notes, but it takes a leader and a strong man to get all the prisoners to stay put for the life of one man. To stay in prison because the guy who just threw you in there is about to kill himself. We're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do? to be saved. So here we see another gift that that Paul gives, right? A gift that makes room for Paul and his company and will continue to bring him before kings, before magistrates, before great men. And that gift is the free gift, as he calls it in Romans, of salvation. The grace of God. The question is, what must I do to be saved? So what drew the guard, right? We know he heard them praying. He heard them singing. We don't know if he heard their message or not. But for sure, it was their hope and their joy 
when things were the bleakest for these men. Right? Compare how Paul and Silas were acting at their bleakest moment to the man when he thought they were gone. He doesn't have hope. His hope completely leaves to the point of, I'm going to kill myself. He's hopeless. And he compares that to their joy in their dark moment. Another thing is uh, what I'll call the ministry of presence. And it's small, but it's in there. And I, I pointed it out that he says, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And then he, he continues to spend time with this man. So I call it the ministry of presence and not a gift that I'm a present, but I'm saying like being present, like being here, being around people. Did Paul, Silas, and his whole company, did they have someplace else that they could possibly be? Like, totally. <laughs> so many other places than in prison. There's a lot of better places that they could have been, but they stayed uh, because their plan would resume when God's plan had finished, right? God has his own thing going on, and he, they're not worried about their plan continuing. Oh, we got somewhere to be. We got a schedule. We got to need it. And, <laughs> oh, God's setting us free. We're going to go now. God had a, a plan for this moment that Paul is operating in. And as I'm saying this, like, this is hard for me, uh, especially in our culture and in our life. Like, we get super crazy busy, but it makes such a difference to be present with people. And I don't mean being around them, like being in the same room. I'm saying, put down the phone. Stay a while. Loosen your grip on your schedule for other people's sake. Like hang out with people, truly. Listen to them. Don't just wait for your turn to talk. Be present with people. This can change people's lives if we actually take this seriously and stay with them as Paul stayed with this man, especially those who are in despair, right? Those who have lost all hope or those who are just feeling down. If you are just present with somebody and just hang out with them, sometimes that's all that they want. Like when you're, again, this isn't in my notes, but when you're in a despairing time in life, you don't want to hear that it's all going to be okay. Like, you, you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear, I know what you're going through. It's like, no, you don't. Like, maybe you went through something similar a while ago. It's not the same. <laughs> maybe it is the same, but in that moment, that's not what you want to hear. You don't want to hear, God's got a plan. You, you don't want to hear all of the cliche things people say when you're despairing. Or like most men, what's the problem? What can I, well, let me fix something, right? But we do this in church too. Like, oh, you got a problem? Like, what can I do? Let me fix it. Can I make you a meal? Can I take you somewhere? Can I do something for you? Like, and then there's just talking and incessant, like, I want silence. I, I don't know what I, I don't even know what I want. Like when you're despairing, sometimes you don't even know what you want. You can't watch TV because it, it reminds you of the thing bad that happened. You can't listen to music because it, it, it brings back some memory. You don't want to talk to people who feel... Sometimes we... Oh, let me just make you laugh and it's going to be okay. It's like, I don't want to laugh. I want to... I want... I'm despairing. I'm hopeless. 
I just want somebody to sit with me. And sometimes that's important to just be present. The ministry of presence. Actually give people your time. Verse 31. It says, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The simplicity of the gospel here. They don't leave it there, by the way. They don't just say that and say, All right. Leave the gospel. See you later. Like, they actually unpack and explain what that means. But this is the simple truth, right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he said, everything he did, everything he is and was, all the fulfillment that he did, and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, again, explaining what all this meant. They, they unpacked the whole gospel to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes from when they were beaten. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced having believed in God with all his health. Now, there's a detail or two, like, sort of missing here. Like, did this guy's family live in the prison? Like, was his house connected to the prison? Like, did this guy, did he take them to the house first? And then Peter, or then Paul preached to him, preached to his whole family? Like, there's a few little details that are missing, but the, whole, the point is, we don't need all the details. This guy got saved. And he's rejoicing because he came to know the truth. His whole family heard the gospel and believed in Jesus and are baptized and are part of the family of God because of Paul and Silas's ministry and how they lived their life in, in some dark times. Verse 35, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves to get us out. So Paul here makes sort of a weird and bold stand when he could just quietly go his way. Like, okay, now I'm legit set free. No one's going to die. I can leave prison. But Paul has a habit of coming back to the places that he preaches to where churches are started. So what he's doing here is he's making a point to make himself known. Like, you can't just treat me however you want. I'm coming back. And he's making a stand like, no, I was mistreated. And sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh, we don't want to stir the pot. We just want to be, like, nice. But Paul stirs the pot a lot. In fact, it's kind of his specialty. And here, he's not letting it go. And I don't want to say hold a grudge. I don't want to say take this too far. But at the same time, when you're being mistreated, there's a point at which you say, no, I kind of need more than that. Because I was mistreated, I was illegal, like you illegally held me, illegally beat me, and now you're trying to put me quietly away so that nobody finds out. I need 
I need a public thing here. You need to come do it, do this yourself. Verse 38, finishing out the chapter here, says, And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. They didn't realize they were Roman citizens. They thought they could treat them however they wanted. <laughs> they Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart the city. Again, that parallel with Jesus. The whole town comes to Jesus like, you got to go. Like, please leave our region. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. They go back to that woman's house that they were staying with who had been saved. And this woman continues to be in the church in Philippi. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Again, in Matthew 8, there's all those parallels. Very interesting that Jesus tells them, like, this is how it's going to go. And then the same things sort of continue to happen. They go, they preach, some people will get saved, some people get angry, they go to prison, they're set free, like, and then they ask them to leave. Like, there's sort of a cycle here that, that we'll see continue, but the same thing happened to Jesus. And that's why the disciples are like, man, we're, we're going through the same stuff as Jesus. Like, this is, this is amazing. And they begged Jesus to leave. They're now saying, Paul, like, you got to leave. And here, even the disciples, like, they're like, yeah, like, you should go. So there are people who are upset about their money, and they've caused this whole thing. They got everybody all upset, and they got them to be beat. The leaders are feeling a little silly, uh, probably a little bit mad that they kind of were like, did this dumb thing, you know? The, the leaders of that town didn't really like that kind of thing. So there's, again, that pot has been stirred, and as we've talked about before, the Christians are probably feeling the pressure of what Paul and Silas brought, right? Like when somebody does stir the pot and there's persecution, it's not just for that person who stirred the pot. It's typically all of the Christians in that region. So they, they're they kind of like, okay, like, yeah, we get it. You got to go because that pot's been stirred. Once Paul's gone, it'll probably settle back down. So Paul and his group, knowing all of this information, they leave, they move on. But first they encourage the believers. And this is Paul's sort of final gift, right? Before he leaves, he, he encourages the believers and then he leaves. And Paul will continue to present all of these gifts that we looked at tonight and they will continue to make room for him and bring him before great men, leaders, uh, kings, so many great men. We're going we're gonna to look at it throughout Acts. But the four gifts that we looked at tonight that will continue to come up are miracles, the grace of God, which is salvation, right? The gift of presence, being with people, eating with people, spending time with people, encouraging people. And that's actually number four is encouragement. These are the four gifts that Paul brings with him throughout his ministry. And I was thinking about it. All of these gifts, they were given to Paul by God. And now he's presenting those same gifts to others, right? The miracle was given to him. He was he was a blind man spiritually. God blinded him in actuality and then miraculously brought his sight back. Right? He's been given the grace of God. He's saved. He has been given the gift of presence. The Holy Spirit is indwelling inside of him. Right? God is dwelling with us. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. And 
Number four, encouragement. Again, that's the, that's the comforter. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry is to comfort us and, and to continue to encourage us in what God has called us to do. So these four gifts have been given to Paul. He continues to give them to others. And what I want to kind of leave you guys with is that, uh, and this wasn't originally supposed to be like a Christmas message, but I know we're talking about gifts a lot. And as I was writing this and thinking about it and praying about it, these gifts, we have all received them from God. Like all four of these things, God has shown up in our lives and he's given us those gifts. And as we go into this sort of Christmas season, we need to present those gifts to people around us, whether it's family or friends or anybody that we encounter. We need to be gracious with them. We need to be present with them. We need to encourage them. We need to present the grace of God, which is salvation. And if God grants us a miracle to do, then we need to present that gift as well. And these gifts that have been given to us as we present them to others, they will make room for us and they will bring us before great men. I don't know what that looks like for each of us, but I know it to be true. It's a promise of God and I've, I've seen it before. And that might mean somebody great within your circle. It might mean something more than that. I don't know. But what I know is when you present these gifts of God to people, he blesses that and he, he makes room for you. So with that, we can pray and have some fellowship. Dear God, I just want to thank you for all of the gifts that you have given us, God, specifically these four things that we looked at tonight. Thank you for the miracles that you've given us, even the miracle of our salvation. That's kind of the biggest one. Uh, thank you for your grace, God. Thank you for dwelling with us, for being present with us, and for your constant encouragement. God, I pray that we don't take these things for granted and that we present them to others uh, as you have presented them to us, God. And I pray that you will... Be with us as we fellowship tonight and bless the rest of this evening and help us to be glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.